I had a weird opportunity to pre-discuss this film with a filmmaker. Oh, that's okay. fun. Peter Bo Rapmund uh, is an experimental filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you about this movie. Okay. Well, so we're not talking about the movie. We're talking about a different movie. Yeah, we're the talking about... Tectonics. Okay. And it is uh, still photography, like a lot, lots and lots of sequences of it, so it gives a sense of movement, but it's more like animation than it is like still photography yeah. or, or even uh, stop motion. Like or, a flip book. Yeah, yeah, or... Um, Time lapse. It's not time lapse either. Gotcha. And so he's shooting both sides of the U.S.-Mexican border from basically Brownsville to Tijuana, San Diego. Okay. And uh, really, really, you know, just sort of alters your way of thinking, which is what experimental film is supposed to do. But uh, anyway, he came to my campus and showed the movie and talked about it and hung out afterward. And uh, we went and enjoyed some libations and uh, just very, very cool guy. Yeah. And uh, and uh, we got to talk about Parasite because just recently both of the sort of main instructors in my program had seen it, and so had he. Oh, and okay. He he was a big fan of it. He really really enjoyed it, and so it was kind of neat to talk about this kind of art with an artist who does this kind of stuff. But if you get a chance to see Tectonics, you should. What well, and what was that filmmaker's name? Uh, Peter Bo Rapmund. All right. Well, Peter Bo Rapmund's uh, Tectonics. Check it out. It's, what did did uh, Peter have any thoughts on Parasite to jump us off? He just he really really I mean again he's such a structural filmmaker so he talked a lot about style and the movement of the camera and sure. that kind of stuff yeah. which is like what turned his crank. But what he really loved um, narratively is how it's one movie and then it's not. Yeah, right. huh? it is one of those. Right. And it's um, yeah the best comedy I have seen until it wasn't. Ah uh, yes, the famous two movies in one. You know we like it. You know it's a flavor that we tend to savor. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, here we are. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And welcome to the Good Trash Honorcast. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in Film Stays Chorus, except for probably this one. Yeah, okay, yeah. Look, if you take a class on uh, contemporary Korean cinema, you're going to talk about Parasite and probably Bong Joon-ho's entire filmography a little bit. Honestly, I think it's going to find its way into many syllabi. Um, Makes sense, it's just, yeah. it's just that laden and deep of a film that it's just going to be a thing that comes up. So now's a good time to tell you, yeah, we're, we're cheating a little bit, but... Uh, we're, we're kicking off something of a 2019 catch-up for us. Uh, we'll, we'll be uh, doing some host picks in a couple of weeks, but for this this week and next week, just just doing some big movies from 2019, rounding out our our watch history before we start thinking about year-end lists. Right on, right on. And so uh, we're doing this, so it's sort of a film that you would discuss. Well, it's a little but, cheaty, but... Uh, you know, anyway. Uh, but we are going to continue with our rules, which are these. Um, we are going to be spoiling this film. It's going to happen. It... Uh, we'll probably be a little bit more tender on spoilers up top than we normally are though since this is a brand new release it's so new and it's still in theaters so we will hold to uh spoiler safe reviews after our synopsis and then spoiler light and we'll be lighter than typical with our expanding the syllabus and then once we get down to business we don't care you better hit that eject button if you don't want to go into parasite knowing stuff I would say Throw your that, phone out the window. Yeah. Whatever happens. Do that anyway. I mean, yeah. And we've had the spoiler conversation but before, but for me, I don't mind knowing. I don't either. Um, but, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm more uh, touchy about it on a new release, probably, yeah. than I would be anything else. Especially this movie, I think. Yeah, especially, yeah. If, you, if you're uh, somebody that's a, a real film lover uh, or, you know, uh, appreciator, sure, this is a big release this year for, for all the, the movie nerds out in the world. So I, I would understand when to go into this cold. Well, it was a lot of fun. We actually had to go see this together at a theater. We don't do that very often. No. So it was a great no. thing to do. It was a good time. It was yeah. really nice. Oh, hey, thanks for your patronage, dear Patreon subscribers. Because, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you paid for that. You did. Yeah, you helped us uh, go to the movies, and we, we had a good time. 
some of us liked it so much we saw it again. We did. For a friend's uh, birthday party. Hey, happy birthday, Keithan. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of patrons, yeah. Keithan. Oh, hey, hang on. Yeah. Uh-oh. Wait, wait. I'll do a little soft shoe while Arthur's putting us on hold. What's going on here? Okay. I don't know. I think we got a special gift. Get, show me show me your soft she, shoes. Uh, well, I'm just wearing Vans today. Okay. Uh, oh, you wanted it. Do you want me to do a dance? Yeah, I do want to see you do a little tap routine right okay. now. All right. This is bad radio dust. Hello my baby. Hello my honey. Hello my ragtime gal. You can tell the listeners at home about all the great footwork doing work Charleston I'm doing right now. And kind of a pretty impressive foxtrot. Um, now he's gone into disco and I hate him. Oh, you know you, you know you love it. You know you love it, baby. Uh, Arthur's probably going to edit this out. So. I, I never know what's going to happen. There. <laughs> Who knows with him? I I can't. I look. I I see why he's uh, such a, a stickler about the edits, especially when we're being assholes to him. Right. Because uh, I'm trying to edit the praise down now, and, and uh, it's tough. It's tough. It takes a lot of like energy to even want to do it. And those boys are far less disciplined. than They we are, are far less disciplined. I love them though. Like, I do. Too, could you I have love, it any other way? I, recording their shows is always a blast for me. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm a big yeah, fan it, of the praise down. Editing a, a comedy show is a different thing. Oh, Arthur's back. Okay, well, close your eyes. Okay, my, uh, our eyes are closed. My eyes are closed. Okay, uh, my, okay, they're I still closed. Close your eyes. Pops. Okay, they're very All closed. Right. I, I, I sort of like, like I'm, I'm so scared. I'm so nervous. I am, I am scared too. No, 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 no. I what's think we, I think we have presents. Though. What's, what's about to happen to me? I don't know. I don't either. I'm so scared. Don't open them. I'm not opening. Don't open them. Not opening. I'm not opening. My eyes are not still utterly it. closed. My hands are. I don't know. I. I'm, so uh, before. Uh, before uh, the birthday festivities for our dear friend Keithan, uh, he contacted me uh, because he wanted to get us all Christmas presents. Oh no! He so did it's a little not. early in the year, but uh, keep your eyes closed. Uh, they Angel. are still closed. Uh, still closed. So it's a little early, I know. Uh, a couple weeks from Christmas, a few weeks from Christmas. But uh, I thought Parasite. We saw it with Keithan. Uh, he brought that all together to see it again. Uh, and I thought it would be appropriate to uh, give these to you here. So uh, if you open your eyes, you can uh, see okay. your Keith, uh, Keith and Christmas presents. Oh, my God. This <gasps> angel. Oh, my God. All right. I'll let you go first, Dustin. Okay. I've got the uh, Criterion edition of David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Uh, I am well. Okay, I, I have a certain wheelhouse. And you do is, have a certain wheelhouse, and that is definitely within it. That's excellent. Awesome. I, Thank I, you, Keithan. I have here a uh, director-approved special edition Criterion release of Boyhood, uh, oh, nice. which box art features uh, multiple photographs of each of the uh, the lead actors, uh, which is really cool. There's uh, five five photographs each of each of the leads uh, taken throughout the course of production. Um, so that's this is a really great packaging. Oh my god, Keith I'm and you pulling sweetie. off the cellophane. As I, we I still haven't watched the last Criterion release Keith and got me, which was uh, which was Thief. Uh, but I am queuing up a uh, a heist marathon uh, in my household right now. Yeah. yeah, so I'm very excited about that one. Arthur, what'd you get, buddy? Uh, he got me a copy of Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Oh no, nice. yeah. So yeah, it's one I haven't gotten around to. Oh. I'm very excited to visit that one. Arthur uh, may Jesus. lend itself to a war marathon down the road. Ooh. Jesus for the show. Fascism. I think that would be fun. We haven't done a lot of war movies, so that would be a good, oh, a good, be good way to do marathon. Uh, something with that. It's yeah, going to so. be a lot of me talking about uh, the podcast uh, <laughs> Friendly Fire, but I'm into it. <laughs> Uh, now, yeah. the, Arthur, I'm I'm excited for you to watch that one because Thin Red Line's the only Malik that I unequivocally love. Really, it's the only Malik that on first watch I was like, okay, this is great. Yeah, so yeah, I'm very it's, excited. It's the one that's made me like a, a little bit warmer on his other films because it's kind of provided helpful context. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a stacked cast of who's who of the early 2000s. Oh, isn't it? And buddy, a or lot of 99, them, 1998. Sorry, a lot of them had no idea how little of the movie they were going to be in. <laughs> 
So yeah, uh, Keith, and thank you so much. Uh, it means a lot to us. You're uh, such really a, appreciate that. You're so. such a sweet man. There's an essay included by Christine McKenna. I, oh yeah, this is good. I'm so excited. Man, oh man. <sighs> so yeah, Parasite. So let's talk about Parasite now okay. that we, we, we've uh, we, we've dispensed with the pleasantries. Uh, th- th- Dustin just wants to go watch Blue Velvet. Now. Uh, yeah, goodbye. <laughs> Boyhood's you know a, a real commitment, so I'm I'm not going to be He's watching. Go talk about Roy Orbison and PBR and uh, watching Blue Velvet. So. Yeah, Heineken. Anyway, moving right along. <laughs> Um, let's hear that synopsis, Arthur. Yeah, so I didn't want to get too spoilery with this one, to Dalton's point, since it is uh, pretty new. Uh, but I lifted a synopsis from IMDb that kind of sets up the movie, I think, pretty well for us. Jobless, penniless, and above all, hopeless, the unmotivated patriarch Kai Taik, I'm, I'm going to butcher all these names, and I really do apologize, because uh, I don't know Korean, um, and his equally unambitious family, his supportive wife Chung Suk, his cynical 20-something daughter Ki Jung, and his college-age son Ki Woo, occupy themselves by working for peanuts in their squalid basement-level apartment. Then, by sheer luck, a lucrative business proposition will pave the way for an insidiously subtle scheme, as Ki-woo summons up the courage to pose as an English tutor for the teenage daughter of the affluent Park family. Now, the stage seems set for an unceasing winner-take-all class war. How does one get rid of a parasite? And who is the parasite? Dun-dun-dun! Questions abound. Uh, I I like this movie a lot, y'all. It's super good. Well, hey, go ahead and go first then. Give us your review. Give me give me your review, please. Well, I, I heard something interesting uh, listening to uh, film spotting uh, discuss Parasite. Uh, Adam Kempinar, the the host, one of the hosts over there, I should say, um, said something to the effect of when you when you go into Parasite, uh, you know, hype is a thing that happens around a film release, but going into uh, something like Parasite, uh, especially with its mini and accolade coming out of festival season. It, is it the Palme d'Or winner? Mm-hmm. That's it is what I thought. Palme d'Or. So that As is the title the, card says. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The international Oscar winner, if you want to yeah. translate it to American parlance. Yeah. I mean, it's so it's a big deal. So when you go into, and again, Bong Joon-ho, a very uh, notable filmmaker, uh, internationally notable. Uh, so when you go, he said something effective. When you go into this, you don't just expect a good movie. You expect something kind of transcendent. Uh, in, in terms of what the cinema is going to do for you, um, I, I to that would say uh, to answer that question: Is it transcendent? Does it live up to that that hype? Uh, when the film ended, Dustin looked at Arthur and I uh, and said, in response to uh, just us goofing around about uh, Marty and his take on the MCU, uh, Dustin looked at us and said, "That's that's cinema." That's a cinema, mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to argue with. Um, and and I think a film like Parasite is the best kind of film for challenging that conversation around uh, Tim Pole franchise filmmaking, specifically. Uh, you know the the interconnected serialization, uh, big budget form TV making that is the MCU. I, I think a movie like Parasite does really challenge that because it is so much a film about change. It, it's a film about how nothing can stay the same. No stasis is attainable, uh, regardless of your class standing. And I think that's something that I I, I really am pulled uh, by uh, coming from the film Parasite uh, because it, it does make these distinctions uh, that are messy. You know, uh, coming off of Snowpiercer, a film very explicitly about class warfare um, and a film in which you do get to root for the underclass um, in this film, you know, Bong Joon-ho has given us a much more realistic world. It is the world of 2019. Uh, uh, Arthur said something very interesting to me uh, that, I guess, uh, 
in the lead up to the film getting released to, in America, uh, I guess somebody brought up to, to Bong like, hey, what do you think this is going to work uh, for American audiences? You know, do you think this stuff's going to translate? And he goes, ah, we live in the same country, man. We all live in capitalism. So Ooh. I think it'll translate. Yeah. And I think it's thinking about that and his previous film, Snowpiercer, that really sets the stage for Parasite, a film where allegiances are a lot harder. Because real people are a lot more nuanced than the action figures of Snowpiercer, despite, you know, that film's pretty, very cool, smash it up politics, um, and it's, you know, it's interesting questions about survival and apocalyptic landscape. This film is just about survival and when that survival starts making you a bad person. And at what point do you become responsible for the people around you? And at which point does greed and short-sightedness stop being a class issue and start becoming a human issue? Um, and it's it's interesting and profound questions like that that I think make Parasite so rich as a text. That's not what makes it good, though. What makes it good is filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just great filmmaking. And I don't just mean the direction, although that's obviously great, too. But performances and story and all of these things really come together. Scoring in this film is absolutely outstanding. Um, and I, I think I'll, I'll leave off on this, Think talking about filmmaking. Because there's a sequence towards the end of the film that these things really come together for me. I mean, there's many sequences throughout the film that really I love. Uh, but to, to keep it vague, Mr. Kim, uh, the patriarch of our, of our uh, primary uh, family, I would say, they kind of do share, no, no, I would say, the ostensible protagonist for most of the film, Mr. I Kim, um, is taking uh, Mrs. Park out for a grocery shopping expedition. Um, and Mr. Kim has had a rough night, uh, probably the roughest of his life. Uh, and has had to drop some pretty hard truths on his children um, going into this day. Uh, so he is listening to Mrs. Park rally the troops for this impromptu and big fat air quotes party that she's throwing. Um, and the breeze and joy and sunshine radiating off of uh, Mrs. Park is slowly killing Mr. Kim uh, in a pretty brutal way. And you watch this play. Uh, play out over over his face. The the actor there, of course, uh, being uh, 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 Song Kang Ho. There we go. I, I was going to flip the first and last names around because IMDb is nice enough to put them in the real listed order. Uh, but Song Kang Ho is a, a collaborator of Bunch and Ho's from uh, The Host, and I, I know him from Snowpiercer. He's got a really great part in that. And he's such a great actor because this entire sequence, the music builds, all these things are coming together. The cutting and the the camera work and the music are all working together. Uh, to enhance his performance, which is on its own outstanding. And you watch his face throughout the sequence build and build and build uh, until the, uh, finally they are in the car on the way back home. And um, she's got her dang feet up by his face, and she's mad about how bad he smells. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, she does not know the evening that he has had, but I think that really speaks to the the, the prime issue. Uh, we can't know each other's interior lives and it's important to remember that you have no idea what mountain of bullshit every person you interact with is having to deal with that they're keeping to themselves. Um, so yeah, that's that's the sequence for me that I, I think it stands alone in my review. Like that that's something that I think can highlight and say that's a hell of a sequence of filmmaking and kind of speaks to just everything about this that works so well because every every scene is like that. It just it's it's harmony, man. 
You watch good filmmaking, you go, oh, that's that's how it's supposed to be done. That's right. Mm-hmm. You forget sometimes. So that's my review, I guess. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, Um, we've seen it like three times. I have. So um, you hate it, right? Oh, terrible. Yeah. Uh, it's garbage. Worst uh, thing ever. I had to read the words? I'm like, what? what kind of a movie is that? <laughs> I want to buy a book. I'd have gone to a library, <laughs> yeah. right? At least it was illustrated. Um <laughs> I, uh, yeah, this movie, I, I saw it, I actually saw it for the first time before we went together to see it. Um, and so it was a lot of fun the second time seeing you two react, uh, to the beats that I knew were coming. Yeah. Um, and then again, the third time when we went as a giant group with there were at least 15 of us in a theater that was pretty full, surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, on a Friday night for this Korean film. It was uh, hopping. Yeah. I was a lot of fun. I'm sure Dalton had this fun too to hear everybody else reacting. It was great. Uh, it's because you you anticipate those things happening. Yeah. And you're like, oh, how are they going to respond? I know how I respond. Yeah. How are they going to respond? When you hear a laugh of somebody that you know yeah. uh, further down from you, always a fun time. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a great time. Um, and yeah, I mean, it lends itself to those emotions. The second and third time, I'm still captivated. And a movie this plotted with so many beats happening. Um, to still have an impact, I think, after multiple watches, uh, speaks to its power. You know, it's not a gimmick. It's not a novelty. It's uh, a, a piece of work that, yeah. that really lands each time you watch it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've greatly enjoyed it. It's the funniest movie until, like Dustin said, until it's not. Um, and when it does those hard gear shift tone changes, it lands each and every one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly well. I mean, and it's a dangerous line to walk, but Bong just just works it like a threading a needle. Uh, it's, yeah, it's perfect. Um, well, especially when your you know your like cinematic themes are all about those those shifting allegiances and those shifting considerations. Like letting the tone shift that frequently and that smoothly is it helps those themes. Yeah, uh, and, and so you know performance is great, especially Mr. Kim. Um, he, he he's probably the richest character I, I think in the film because he is definitely struggling with this his place in life. You know, he, he's the one that kind of starts to show remorse for some of the actions the family has taken. And his family's like, no, you got to think about us. And he's the one that really has to deal with it. And when it does finally hit home and, and things go uh, the way they go, it's very impactful. Um, it's a heartbreaking performance in, in a lot of ways. Uh, it's the richest performance and, uh, you know, just stellar. I, I'm excited to see some other stuff. I haven't watched a lot of uh, Bong stuff or other Korean cinema. So I'm wanting to kind of seek that. I know he's memories of a murder, uh, which I believe is 2003, which has been coming up a lot in recent discussions with uh, Parasite as one of Bong's best movies, if not his best movie. Um, so I want to travel back in time, try to watch that. The Host, of course. Um, the last Bong movie I watched was Okja, which we did for the show. So we've kind of got mm. uh, back-to-back Bong hits uh, here <laughs> on the show. <laughs> you uh, are serious. It had to happen. <laughs> it had to happen. Somebody had to get it out of the way. Uh, okay. I'm glad you got it out of the way. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, and you know, just the—I mean, his direction as well, and kind of speaking that with the tonal shifts. I mean, that's just a masterwork. I think uh, there he's—it feels old-fashioned. It feels very Hitchcock. And there's even a, a shot of some—couldn't tell if they're DVDs or books on the on a shelf, but there's one that has Hitch's photo on it. So I mean, it feels very, very mm-hmm. uh, on the nose, but uh, it's very appreciated. I'm looking forward to that sequel of Evil Bong and the Ginger Dead Man. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> oh boy. Woo. Um, a little full moon. Yeah. I, uh, so, yeah. Um, and then production design is, is another big thing. That damn house, y'all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was reading an interview with Bong and his production designer. I can't think of his, his name. But uh, it was saying, you know, Bong had pretty well scripted where he wanted the camera, how he wanted to move through the house. And uh, the production designer sat down. And when they built the house, um, 
on the set because it's a set. It's mm-hmm. all a set uh, on a studio. Um, the house, the garden, uh, wow. all fabricated with the movie in mind. Wow. Where they wanted to put the cameras, how they wanted to move them, how they wanted to light the house. So we've got those giant uh, windows there in the living room. Which that yard is on a sound studio. Yeah, it's all yeah. shut. That's that's nuts. I did not know that. I'm amazed. Yeah, no wonder the so lighting's so perfect. They designed the house with the 2.35 ratio in mind, oh the way he wanted God. to shoot it, the way he wanted to move the camera. This guy. <laughs> so it's very intricately uh, constructed, just like the house. Yeah, uh, and it's I want fascinating. It to win all the Oscars. Yeah, um, and so uh, I mean, it's rare I go to a movie in theaters more than once. Yeah. And, you know, to do it for like an event where somebody else wants to go, yeah, sure, I'll see it again. But to see it, you know, three times is something uh, for me to kind of stand up and take notes and be like, I think this is this is something worth talking about, something that's going to resonate for a while. Especially seeing the audiences that I've seen, typically these types of movies, if we do get them in Oklahoma City, which is rare. I was really shocked that we got it as early as we did. Yeah, we, they draw a limited crowd usually. Yeah, and they really don't carry over more than a week. And so there are a couple factors there, but I think uh, – the multiple times I've seen it, we've had a pretty good crowd each time. And so, uh, you know, I'm hoping it kind of holds over some more and more people go see it because I think it's easily one of the best movies of the year, if not the best movie of the year uh, that I've seen. And uh, I I can't say enough good things about it. It is the highest grossing foreign language film in the U.S. of 2019. Yes. That makes sense. I believe it's one of Bong's. I know it's made $100 million. Wow. Well, good for him. Or broke $100 million internationally, I think. Yeah. And uh, off of like a, I can't remember, like a really low budget like 30 million maybe or less it feels like a 30 million dollar yeah. movie it feels about right yeah so i mean yeah. though when you describe the design of that house and then i think the budget never start that going, money that, ticking that, up in my head that money's on screen yeah yeah so yeah dustin what'd you think um it's good <laughs> yeah it'll do no it's great are you kidding me it's it's a great movie and i like it better than the other bong Joon ho films i've seen so far which are only snowpiercer and okja um, and the reason why is I am on board with his politics. What he's doing right now, this sort of class struggle um, representation yeah. that he is all about doing, I- I'm all for it. But in that fantasy sci-fi mode or in that sort of action superhero mode, when he's doing those things, it does get strangely over the top. It's not that the message isn't clear, but it's less pedantic in a yeah. film like uh, Parasite. Well, because there's more, uh, yeah, as I said, there, he, there's a room for mo- more nuance well, in the real world. There's subtlety, there's complexity, um, there's um, you know a culpability sort of going across those edges so it's not quite so stark and black and white. And yet, clearly, the sort of moral you know weight definitely lays itself down with uh, Mr. Kim and his family. And uh, that's where it should be, and that's clearly where um, uh, Bong's uh, allegiances lie. And so I like that about it. I like the way in which it knows what it's doing and is able to highlight... Okay, there's a great joke that's going on a lot in the first part of the film about that which is metaphorical. Yeah, it is, baby. And I love it because it's like this sort of nonsense filler for when you don't know what to say. And yet, it is fully impregnated with metaphor uh, throughout. That rock is a big deal, and uh, we'll talk more about that. Oh, Chekhov's rock? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about Chekhov's rock. (laughs) I did not think Chekhov's rock, but that is awesome. Thank you. Um, Was that on the Enterprise? (laughs) Uh, yes, is his pet rock is the sixties. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they had cool. that. It yeah. was a thing that happened then, uh, but like six years later. Anyway, um, but yeah, so uh, the performances are great. The music's great. Uh, cinematography, as we've already discussed, is great. And again, the way he's able to deftly wield his themes inside that narrative and to play around with tone and to be able to accomplish those purposes with again 
avoiding the sort of bash over your head. I feel like this movie, like I, I feel like my neocon, you know, pro capitalist friends would see Oakja and go, "I'm done with this," or yeah. Snowpiercer. And like, I'm done with this. I'm done with this lefty liberal garbage. Yeah, or, yeah or I'm absolutely. Just, I'm gonna ignore it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna just watch Captain America fight his way through the train, yeah. and I'm gonna be down. And that, but I'm gonna sort of ignore and elide all that stuff. What what this film does is it still invites you to be part of that, yeah. and it invites you into its criticism in such a way that the, the empathy that it achieves is really pretty impressive. Um, and empathy achieves with some somewhat unsympathetic characters. I mean, there is some real unscrupulousness on part of the Kim family about what's going on here. And some real, I mean, dangerous, like wicked, evil things. I mean, I don't mind giving that sort of moral qualification to some of their actions. Oh, oh absolutely. Most definitely. And yet they remain sympathetic because of the fundamental situations regarding class. That's what's really powerful about the film. Well, and I would say to that point, talking about metaphor, talking about things that are made up, I mean, it's a film that also remembers that class is made up quite mm -hmm. frequently. And all of these roles that we assign each other to are things that we have invented. And it's easy in a film like Snowpiercer to say Tilda Swinton and Ed Harris and the people at the front of the train are uh, deserving of axe combat. Uh, the Park family is more nuanced, mm -hmm. and they should be easily unlikable, and they often are. But they're charming, and they're sweet, and they're dumb as shit. Right. I, lo I, love, I love their boy. I do, too. He's wholesome in his own way. They're, I like the little Their girl. daughter's okay. She's a she's a, she's well, she's a, very she's a teenager. She's, she's a teenager. teenager. Yeah. So, and yeah. teenagers are a, a fundamentally stupid Soulless people. sociopaths. Yeah, they can't help it. It's not their fault. That's no, really not. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Park family could come across a lot more vile than they mm -hmm. do. And they... They do, but they They're, also come across as very silly, and well, there's an empathy that the Kim family has for them that I think is really important well, in establishing our empathy for the Kims. And I think their particular vileness is there and is present, but it is mediated with their humanity. And yeah, so, yeah, it's absolutely. like, okay, I'm, you know, there's a sense in which there's a something somewhat lovelessness in yeah. the relationship. There's a certain uh, extent to which uh, she's depicted as kind of batty, and yet sweet. Yeah. You know, batty, sweet, and mean. And he is depicted as controlling, distant, and also kind. Yeah. And how he's, that's, I, I, I and like think, deeply anxious. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a real power to that. Yeah. Um, and the anxiety is sort of motivated by self-interest, but also sort of an altruistic interest for his family. And sure. for his family only. And there's like a, a border there that needs to be broadened. Uh, and clearly the film seems to suggest that. But the fact that the altruism's even there at all is, um, is winsome. You know, for the character. So, yeah, um, I, I, I enjoy that complexity more than anything uh, about the film. So, yeah, big fan of this particular outing uh, from Bong Joon-ho. So uh, there you go, dear listener. Um, we liked it. See you next week. Bye. Bye now. Hey, no, it's time to do Expanding the Syllabus. Let's let's make a class. Let's make a class where you use Parasite. What would you read? What would you watch? Um, go, Dalton. All right, well, I will go ahead and start first. The name of our class this week is, uh, well... Let's talk about class, baby. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about you and me and solidarity. Uh, we're going to read the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> That's how we're starting this class. I think it's important. Uh, Workers of the world unite. I think it is important if you are going to only be watching narrative film. And again, if I was a smarter, more well-read person, I would probably bring in more contemporary uh, economic texts, more contemporary sociological texts about class disparity and class struggle. Uh, maybe we could talk about something like Nickeled and Dimed in America. They are – shit, I can't remember the name of the book. There's a really famous uh, journalist who has written a couple of 
uh, books uh, about uh, there, there's two seminal texts. One is very recent. I was confusing them with the same author. Uh, it's not important. Uh, I'm not well read enough uh, right now to drop those, and we uh, had a tight turnaround on this show for research. So let's just say the Communist Manifesto to get us started thinking about class theory. Let's go back to its roots, um, because when we talk about these sorts of social theories of the world, yes, Dustin? I was going to recommend a more modern text, but I wanted to make sure I could pronounce this fellow's name Yeah, correctly. hit it. Help me out here, it, it, bud. Okay, so the guy's name is Bhaskar Sunkara. But the name of the of the text is the Socialist Manifesto, recently released by um, Verso Press, and it opens with this sort of imagined story of working at um, uh, John Bon Jovi's pasta um, factory. He's got a pasta company, pasta mm. sauce canning company, and uh, re envisioning what it would look like under a socialist system. And so it begins with the constructive thing before it sort of traces out the history of uh, democratic socialism in the United States. So um, that might be a contemporary text. Thank you. And uh, that gave me time, Dustin, appreciate that, uh, to get the text I was thinking of, which is Nickel, uh, Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America by Barbara Einreich, uh, mm. which is a book that I've uh, had to read at one point, or at least parts of it, uh, and I, I think is a very good uh Important again. It's about twenty years old at this point, so it's a little out of date um, in some regards about the the modern working world. But it is a, a very good uh, text about the the unlivability of working poverty in the United States uh, and the vision we get of working poverty in um, in Parasite and what that looks like in South Korea doesn't seem that dissimilar to uh, what we have going on in the U.S. And there are two countries that are more similar than they are dissimilar, I would say, probably. Um, but again, I think it is important for us to start with the social text if we are only going to be uh, looking at fictional films, which we are going to be for this class. I think it is important to have some really good real-world context for the stuff that we're going to be talking about and where these theories of social interaction come from. So that's that's why I did want to start with, you know, that, I mean, Karl Marx's kind of foundational text. We're talking about uh, conflict theory. Um, in, in our understanding of the organization of society. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, Snowpiercer and Parasite both, uh, because I think uh, these are giving us two opposite ends of the same spectrum. Parasite uh, being a uh, Hollywood co-financed film, um, that kind of changes a whole lot about what sort of film we get. Uh, it is obviously a science fiction fantasy action film. Um, it's it, it's painting with a much broader brush, as we've kind of alluded to already uh, in you know our kind of uh, passing remarks about Snowpiercer. But it's a really good film. Uh, I know some people that don't like it very much, including friend of the show Kirsten Thurkelson. Uh, but, you know, uh, it takes all kinds. Uh, not every film is for everybody. And I, I would agree that uh, Snowpiercer is not um, on the same level as Okja or Parasite, probably. Uh, but I think it's really good, and if we are doing a class uh, about class and using Parasite as a text, I think it's important to use Snowpiercer to kind of reflect that. Um, next up, we are going to try and stay within that same kind of uh, prestige mode of Parasite, but we are going to pivot and use some of the Hollywoodness of Snowpiercer and talk about another recent film about class, and that's Widows, uh, the Stephen Queen film from last year, uh, which I think is much more wide-reaching in its concerns. It's, it's a much... Uh, bigger film in terms of talking about the sort of class conflict stuff because it is a little bit more concerned about the mechanisms of corruption within local governance that allow this sort of class corruption to continue, the sort of um, profiteering off of working people 
and how that works. And again, um, I'm not from Chicago. I have only been to the airport, but people who are from Chicago uh, say they really like Widows as a Chicago movie. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that's something, it's always nice to hear when people like uh, a representation of their city on film. Um, but that's not, for me, what makes Widows so great. For me, it is these wonderful performances we get uh, because it does get to bring in um, some gender considerations along with those class considerations uh and i I think it's super super fertile ground for analysis and discussion uh about the the ways in which and again widows also gives us a lot to do uh with race and class uh and so talking about where these things fit together how they fit together and influence each other and change people's experiences of of class is i think going to be really fertile ground again doing a genre movie too uh lets us connect it with Snowpiercer and that elevation lets us connect it with Parasite. Uh, next up, we are going to stay international. We're going to try to fold in some more international cinema in this class and talk about a film we've done on this show, Girlhood from France. I uh, nice. don't have that filmmaker's uh, info right off, uh, right up here. Scarama. Celine Scarama. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Ah, I knew I could count on you. From the upcoming Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That's right. Yes. Oh, that movie looks really good. It does look good. We don't need to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, though, because we need to talk about Girlhood, which is a really wonderful film uh, about uh, just a young girl trying to get by in the in the, the neighborhoods of, of France, man, and what uh, her friendship with uh, this kind of uh, girl gang she ends up hanging out with looks like. And... It is interesting to see that familial structure of Parasite extended to a friend group. And, you know, we we talked about teenagers being terrible people. Well, what happens when teenagers are each other's only support group for surviving these uh, class troubles and trying to get by uh, and and, and make a little something for yourself? Uh, So, again, Girlhood, I just think, is going to really add some more uh, context to this conversation about what does this conversation we're having look like internationally, especially in uh, a country that has a different uh, history with class uh, and uh, class conflict, uh, a country that has a different relationship with race, but also a different relationship with uh, immigrants and refugees. So again, I think looking at um, th- this film from Paris or from uh, France, uh, th- looking at this portrait of, of contemporary Paris, uh, gives us a lot of fertile ground because it doesn't look like Seoul. It doesn't look like Chicago. It looks like something very different. Uh, and finally, we are going to go back to the United States and go to truly uh, one of America's great lands of uh, horrifying class disparity. And we're going to Orlando, Florida uh, to watch The Florida Project, uh, a really wonderful film. I made my uh, list too, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, yeah. Uh, just so good. And one that came up last year, uh, when we were talking into the year stuff, um, it, it it really is great, and uh, don't have a whole lot to say about it other than go listen to our episode about Tangerine we did a while back. Um, that'll that'll be a good start for you if you uh, if you want to get into the Florida Project and uh, what that filmmaker is all about. Sean Baker, I uh, had to get his name pulled up. Sometimes things these things don't come so quick, uh, but Sean Baker really does a great job of avoiding something I'm sure we'll talk about in analysis, which is. Um, this idea of poverty porn when narrative film, uh, and that's something that we'll have to talk a lot about in this class because we are deliberately only doing fictional uh, depictions of of poverty and and class disparity uh, because when you choose to look at those things through a narrative lens, uh, you have to remember about all the damn money 
that exists to make a narrative film sometimes. And I think looking at the shoestring budgets of the Tangerine or the Florida Project, whichever Sean Baker movie you want to talk about, uh, and the ways in which Sean Baker tries to operate as much as a journalist as a filmmaker, I think is really important in telling stories that are empathetic and vulnerable and real and not exploitative. Um, so I think that's why ending on the Florida Project and the film that has that sensitivity and that nuance is, is really important. Not that all of these films I've mentioned don't have that. I think the Florida Project is it's such a feature of that film. It's hard not to talk about, um, especially just the way it was produced. Um, so that's, that's going to be the class. Let's talk about class, baby. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, Hey Arthur, um, what's your class going to look like with parasite? I think I would just go with an international cinema or world cinema, uh, course. And I've got a couple of essays here. I would probably go with, uh, the first is Fernando Solanas and Octavia Gettino's towards a third cinema notes and experiences for the development of a cinema of liberation in the third world. Nice. Um, and let me just read a little from this introduction here about the essay um, talking about the third cinema. First cinema uh, are the Hollywood productions, state-sponsored or other commercial film industries. Uh, they're ubiquitous. Uh, second cinema is rarefied and lauded for its artistic quality, which blunts its political effectiveness. Uh, it supports the myth of the artist is separate from the people, and it is available only to the elite. Think Ingmar Bergman. Third cinema combines first cinema's appeal to the masses with second cinema's reflexive modernism, but it innovates by changing the circuits of distribution, exhibition, as well as the relations of production. Uh, so I'd kind of go into that, and they mentioned the Soviets and the uh, effect that uh, art and film specifically can have as a tool of discourse and uh, revolution and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the authors themselves were filmmakers and had quite political uh, careers and discourses and things of that nature uh and then i would also do turning pages turning pages um maybe there it is uh hamid nafisi's situating accented cinema um which really kind of talks about how uh distribution has allowed uh, a lot more international films to be seen and this is never more true than 2019 uh, where Boy, is umpteen it. thousand streaming services um, are available, and many of those feature international films, especially Prime, Shutter, Netflix, uh, Hulu, uh, and we're we are spoiled uh, with film riches and media riches. Uh, and so, uh, with that, I, I would go from there. And and what I like about um, Bong's work here in Parasite is it does kind of feel like that third cinema where. It's it's got some of those. I wouldn't even say elite. True. I mean, it's very genre. It feels like. Yeah. Uh, it's just a master. It's very Hitchcock. I think in a way. And mm -hmm. I don't want to make those comparisons too much. I've heard them made. Uh, they're definitely there. Um, but I, I I think there's something about that that makes it kind of feel like. I mean, it's very comedy. Uh, I was say Hitchcock's not as funny as this movie by a long shot. No. Yeah. Well, sometimes he tries to be. There there are moments. Depends on the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I just want to go with some international genre stuff that might have something to say uh, at times. And the first one is going to be. Uh, Mikhail has a Nevis, uh, OSS 117, uh, Cairo, Nest of Spies. Oh, nice. wow. Uh, okay. Great yeah. Great. You pick. thought I was going to go with the artist, didn't you? Uh, no, I, uh, I, I thought I, I couldn't tell which, uh, French director's <laughs> name you were saying because I thought you might be doing Michael Hazanovicius. Yeah. Uh, wait, is that, wait, who's the guy that did, uh, the Funny artist. Games? 
Oh, you're Hanneke. 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 That's what and I was thinking of. Not French. Not French. Hanneke, Michael Hanneke. Swedish, French? I think, or I think Norwegian he, or something. Swiss. I'm a Danish or something. Terrible citizen of the world. Anyway, and then I'm going to go with Coralie Fargit's Revenge, a, Ooh, a yeah, kind yeah. of horror revenge thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with Isa Lopez's Tigers Are Not Afraid uh, from Mexico, which is very Guillermo del Toro in its fantasy mm-hmm. uh, horror approach. Is that uh, from this year or last year? That's from this year. Okay. Yeah. I, I knew that was, was on recent. Shudder. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's Ooh. about a bunch of. Uh, orphan children trying to live in a world ran by the cartel uh, and the real-life horrors that follow that. I've been hearing about this film. uh, It's very Pan's Labyrinth in its uh, approach to fantasy and horror and how it implements with the real-world horrors that they're facing. It's got some real Lord of the Flies stuff going on, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then from there, I would go with uh, Park Chan-wook's Stoker, uh, another very Hitchcock-y film, very gothic horror in its its approach. Uh, And then finally, I'm going to go with the uh, magical realism fantasy of... uh, Alejandro Inarritu's Birdman. Ooh, uh, interesting. Just kind of round that out and uh, look at some of those works. Um, one of the things that uh, oh, the uh, the Ascented Cinema uh, talks about um, are the different types of filmmakers: those who are exiled or those who are just divorced from their homeland, and those working within different modes of their home country or whatever. And and you know, some of those are foreign language films, but some of those are uh, English films. Stoker and Birdman are both yeah. English, but their uh, filmmakers are prevalent in their home uh, world cinemas. And so uh, just kind of seeing them approach English language films is always interesting. Yeah. You've also got uh, with that class, like a really interesting spread of what that, that blending of first and second cinema, right? I think there's, you've got a a really interesting mix of things that lean genre and things like, uh, like on the Birdman spectrum that lean a lot more uh, arty. Yeah. So I think that, that's a fun spread, Dustin. Yeah. Uh, Arthur. Dustin. Wow. Uh, well, I was... Key- I was uh, my brain was already getting ready to tee him up. Dustin, uh, what you talking about, buddy? All right, so what I want to do with this is I'm going to do a little mini class or a module of a class on socialist realism, um, which is a weird sort of movement in filmmaking, which actually kind of applied itself to a non-realist uh, genre, the musical. And so in the Ooh. Soviet Union in the 1930s, there were all these tractor musicals that occurred. I wouldn't necessarily, <laughs> yeah, like singing. It's the, like Oklahoma. Like loving the harvest and the worker and the proletarian, whatever. You know, again, very, very da, comrade, Soviet stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I think I would use Eisenstein's film The General Line, which is one of his least experimental films, mm-hmm. which is not a musical, but it is the same kind of discussion of these sort of uh, communal farms and and uh, that that uh, just moment in history and trying to depict the situation of these particular kinds of workers and these other workers that are, are sort of a middle class um, property owners mm. and the class struggle that follows with that. And then just the need to get a hold of some tractors. In fact, acquiring tractors is a major plot point in uh, the general line. It's sometimes also titled Old and New. From old Uncle Sergei Eisenstein. Hmm. But I want to sort of begin that as the framing moment because it does go out of style in the 30s hard, as socialist realism does. But we seem to find ourselves currently in a moment of renewal of socialist realism. And so I thought maybe exploring films that are trying to wrestle with those issues, who use an overwhelmingly realist style, might be interesting. And so what I would begin with is, of course, Parasite, as we've already mentioned. And then I would look at uh, Coriata's la- uh, film from last year, uh, the uh, Shoplifters, also winner of the Palme d'Or. Yeah, really popular film from last year. You're uh, not the only person bringing it up in, in uh, comparison to Parasite, well, obviously. It, it's similarly but, plotted, and it yeah. seems like the uh, the various juries at Cannes um, are in favor of this kind of mode of filmmaking. You've already mentioned the Florida Project as an American um, 
sort of contribution to this, and I, I tend to agree still that the Florida Project would be good and useful uh, for this particular discussion from Sean Baker because it is looking at this issue of class and, and difficulty. But also uh, Kelly Reichardt's Wendy and Lucy. Um, I've been wanting to catch up with this Which is like a, a Darden film shot by an American in which you just see how expensive it is to be poor and uh, really wrestle with this this woman who's trying to travel to Alaska for the sake of work. She's got no money, but she's got a dog, and she has to make some very, very tough decisions as to whether or not she's going to be able to get where she needs to go so she can finally have some money. But she finds that the costs of not having money are very, very high, and she would not be incurring those costs were she not quite so poor. Um, lastly, going back to the UK and uh, sort of keeping this international and using the style, I did think about um, Andrea Arnold's American effort with American Honey, but I think I want to actually use Fish Tank instead. Uh, Michael Fassbender, uh, which has uh, some of the sexual politics that are at work also that are part of poverty and uh, part of those discussions and narratives. But again, a very much a realist kind of style, using to be it's kind of a kitchen sink drama in some senses, uh, just discussing the life and times of this young girl growing up in a, you know, uh, kind of a housing project in the UK. And so looking at those kinds of stories and trying to put together, and this is where I would have a tentative thesis. This is one of the great things about doing coursework and assigning graduate students or undergraduates to work with you is I don't have a specific thesis as to what that style is, but I think that these filmmakers are disparate enough and yet thematically similar enough that we could probably iron out some sort of stylistic set of choices um, that are going on uh, with this, which include the use of digital photography and how they're going about using the digital image in order to achieve this sense of realism. And yet the digital image is sort of fundamental malleability. Um, but I'll talk more about that on a different show. Um, anyhow, that's that's where I'd sort of want to take it, though, is, is looking at, again, these sort of like what we might even think of now as social issues film and trying to reconstitute what socialist realism is here in this uh, sort of mini renaissance that we're experiencing in the 21st century. So I'm, I'm glad you brought uh, Wendy and Lucy up and, you know, the the feature of that film that is just the extra expense incurred by being poor. And that uh, that's why I brought up uh, Nickel and Dimed, because mm-hmm. uh, that book is really focused on those those weird just like hidden costs that, that exist in the ways in which like society is structured to penalize people with less resources. Well, criminalize. Crim- I, pr- well, penalize and criminalize in many cases. Yeah. Because sometimes it's just uh, a financial uh, penalty that incurs until it becomes criminal to not pay it, right? Yeah, right. It's, it's a whole thing. But yeah. anyway, I'm, I'm just I'm, for that reason. I'm glad you you mentioned that being a factor in Wendy and Lucy. Wendy and Lucy's a, well, they're all tough watches. All of them are. Well, yeah, deeply, the, deeply sad and tough watches. You listed some some hard stuff. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer, but I think it's now time to get down to business. Yes, business. And that's right, dear listener, and that business is analysis. I'm going to need your uh, driver's license, banking uh, numbers, your titles to your properties. Uh, your mother's maiden name. Yeah, really anything you've got um, if you want to be considered for our services. Uh, well, we've already talked about the big E on the I chart a lot already. Um, we've talked about class affairs, warfare. This, yeah, yeah, and this is definitely a case of that. So let's start this conversation. I, I think somewhere related, but a little different. Who's the parasite? Who? Yes, indeed, is the parasite. Is it? Um, now, now it's spoiler time, y'all. Uh, so 
I, I guess to catch you up, if you have decided to listen to this without watching Parasite, um, the Kim family is successful in all securing employment from the Park family. But to do that, they have to get the driver and the housekeeper fired. Uh, the driver is fired kind of without incident, and uh, it goes off pretty smoothly. Unfortunately, the housekeeper they have to get fired... Is assaulted. Uh, well, uh, came with the house, so she's a lot harder to get out. And to that point, yeah, Dustin is right. They have to assault her with allergens to get her out. Uh, it turns out, though, that her husband has been living in a bunker that the guy that built the house uh, did not assault. disclose to the family that currently lives there. Um, so they have a lurker. They have a lurker who's lived there for four years. avoiding or a ghost if you're a child. If you're a child, yes. So they have a lurker who has been hiding there for four years to avoid loan sharks. It's like a specter's haunting their capitalism. Moving right along. Well, I don't think we are going to move right along because that is exactly what we're getting to. Uh, because it is this character that is the specter haunting this uh, not only uh, the Park family, but also the scam the Kim family is trying to run. Uh, because it is his existence that complicates the Kim family getting the old housekeeper fired. Um, and boy, how did she just want to feed her damn husband? Um, and it is right before this that Arthur mentioned uh, uh, that uh, the daughter uh, uh, in the Kim family, uh, you know, they're they're enjoying some uh, free liquor while the parks are out of town. Uh, and, you know, Mr. Kim is talking about his concern for the old driver. Yes. And it's his daughter that says, no, man, don't worry about them. Worry about us. But yeah. she is also the first one later on uh, to bring up concerns for what they did the night before, which I think his, is interesting. It, it's a mindset they have because even his wife, and she later has regrets, but uh, when they're having that moment around the, uh, the coffee table and, yeah. and, and, and indulging in the uh, the uh, house's uh, benefits, uh, you know, she says, you know, he says something to the extent of, you know, she is nice and she is rich. And no. then she said, no, no. She's nice because she is rich. I'd be nice, too, if, if I, I had rich. all of this. Yeah. yeah. And then she pushes the dog away from her, which is a fucking great, it's a great moment. Movie. It's yeah. a great moment. That's such a good, like, punctuation mark to that that joke. But, yeah, I, it, it is the scene, the sequence, I should say, uh, where the Kims end up stuck in a park house overnight uh, is really where the film kind of unfolds and becomes a new movie and kind of reveals to you what this whole parasite business is about. And uh, it's a metaphor Mm-hmm. As it turns out, it is so <laughs> metaphorical. Uh, as the sun has reminded us repeatedly, uh, th- this is the the story that we have. Uh, so, who who did Parasite to you guys? All of them. I I'm kind of I mean, the, with you there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, the house is the host, right? I mean, this this symbol of class and, and wealth that was um, mentioned early on, designed by the famous architect named Namgung or uh, whatever his name is in the movie, and uh, you know that. That house is a symbol of wealth. Anybody that moves into that house or can afford that house is instantly recognized as being of a different class. And, and, and so it's uh, always on the mind of even the uh, the Parks family. I mean, they didn't buy that house unintentionally. They knew what that would represent with their status in, 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 in culture. And, and so they are existing there, feeding off of this symbol and this reputation that the house brings them. And then also the both families, the Kims and the other uh the, the maid and the, the former, housekeeper and former her housekeeper husband, and husband yeah also embody this host as well all of these these people are living and trying to sustain themselves off of what this status allows 
uh, them to have. Yeah. Well, I do think um, even then the parks are parasitic to an extent because yeah. they are sucking the life out of these families, you know, all yeah. the hours of all the days that they use because they have the privilege of, you know, being wage slaves to them. Yeah. And therefore, you know, whatever we demand upon you, yeah. you have to sort of provide. I mean, yes, there is some benefit insofar as they are being paid a salary, but it does not seem to be a living wage. Which is what separates it from being a symbiotic type relationship. Right, yeah. yeah but, it, yeah, it, so it, it ends up being like a, sort of a mutual parasitism you know, that's at work there. Well, because, yeah, the obvious answer is everybody is leeching off the parks, but it's so much more complicated than that, Mm -hmm. right? Because the parks are fundamentally, completely, and utterly incapable of living in the world. Yes. Uh, And and that is, you know, a a common discussion point when we start talking about domestic service and, and the sorts of... Uh, luxury that wealth affords you when you start having employees that help you maintain your life in your home, then we start talking about the ways in which uh, money is generational. And at a certain point, if enough generations of a family have had money for long enough, they just don't know how to do shit. Mm-hmm. They fundamentally don't understand how to exist in the world. And dishes, cooking. Dishes, these, these tiny things. And it, it is uh, both that money that allows them to be so nice, uh, but it's that money that allows them to be very unaware of not only how to maintain their home, but really just what goes on in the world around right. them. Uh, they, they do seem very insulated from what it's like for their domestic servants to get by. Uh, You know, they seem to think they're paying these people very well. Uh, Why do you think they smell weird, you idiot? Gee, I wonder. Like, it it, it is interesting what they don't know. And Mm -hmm. it is these things that they don't understand that bother them and uh, make them uh, distrusting of the people that they've brought into their home, even though they speak very highly of them. And we only know that uh, because, you know, the Kim family uh, gets to eavesdrop on them for an evening. Right. It's fun that you brought that up because right before we recorded, I saw this tweet. I don't know if you saw it as well from Walter Chaw. No, I am um, off the Twitter still. I know. Oh, it's wild. I don't it's know weird to, to think world. that I don't see your stuff on there all the time. I know. It's uh, I'm, I'm happy for you. Thanks, really man. Am. I need it. It's a cleanse. Uh, but he uh, tweeted out, fun fact. When rich people see Parasite, they think the title refers to the poor people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I guess the, the, the thing that is important to draw, right, is because the, the easy answer is the rest of us see the, the rich people as the Parasite. But, I, again, I think the film is deliberately more complicated. It's both ending, yeah. 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 It, well, I mean, we were set up in a situation of mutually unbeneficial relationships. Yeah. And I, I think it's no service to the wealthy that we have the same class system that we have, that it does damage them. That that there is a a haunting that there is a psychic da- damage that takes place, um, and so the trauma of the young Park child is uh, I think metaphorical in this sense for the ongoing sort of legacy of this way of living, this way of establishing an economic system, and so yeah, I mean the. It's it's easy to sort of make it good guys and bad guys, and you know read. It's easy to make it cowboys and Indians. Yeah, boy, Uh, we got to talk about cowboys. Oh, we'll get there. Okay, keep going though. Um, But it's easy to do that. But I think what what um, Bong is doing here is subtle insofar as he is illustrating the sort of damage that is sort of necessarily required um, just by the nature of the system being what it is. That it doesn't really even serve the wealthy that well. I mean, they're doing better. Well, they're, they're unequivocally, they're doing better. Unequivocally, their situation and their circumstances are um, superior. They don't have to worry about their house filling up with shit water when it rains. Correct. Yeah, that's that's very unlikely for them. Yet, at the same time, they're 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 not unscathed. 
from the system. And I, and I do find that sort of aspect to be really fascinating. And I do think that there's a way in which uh, the film negotiates. Let's talk metaphors. And we talked about the ghost now and that haunts and causes the psychic damage. The two sort of major um, elemental motifs that are at work, and there's, there's the rock itself which is sort of immobile, unchanging, and inert. And yet also, water itself is a constantly um, moving metaphor throughout the text. And I, I, I do feel like there's a weird sort of just over-the-top reverse trickle-down economics. Like, what? yeah, what trickles down is, yeah, um, there's that going on. Uh, with what it. trickles down is free Wi-Fi and poop. Yes, yeah, pretty much. Um, that is that is it. Um, and you're lucky to get the Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, but but you'll definitely always get the poop. Yep. Yeah. Well, and again, Arthur mentioned the house as a host, but the house is almost its own parasite. On this, is this in Seoul? I assume it is because it looks very metropolitan. I don't know. I don't know if it, I'll uh, I'll see. Yeah. Well, Arthur's pulling that. There are lots of big fancy cities in South Korea. For sure. But... We'll just say South Korea for right now. I mean, because it, this house is built, and again, I. I, I didn't know that realize this about the way cities are constructed, but it makes sense because people have been living in that peninsula for a very long time and building structures there for a very long time. A hot minute. The newer portions of the city are built atop the older portions of the city, right? We see that the, the ways in which the, the city is built, the water just drains straight into these older neighborhoods, these sub- where you know these sub basements where a lot of working class people are living. And what happens when you get a lot of water? On a peninsula, it floods, mm-hmm. and the house itself is like built atop everyone. I mean, in a, a, how metaphorical this house exists atop this the bones of these older structures that are you know flushed out every single time it rains. Because again, everybody's acting like this is not the first time it's happened. They're acting like it's the worst time it's happened recently. Mm-hmm. But when we get to this flood sequence uh, late in the film. It does seem to be something that most of the characters have experienced before, except for the children. Right. And, and the, the way in which that water works temporally is like it's not there permanently. It's not always there. They're not always being flooded. But what they locate um, in the wreckage of the home is the rock, the immobile, the unchanging rock, which is, I think, the capitalist state, the capitalist system. Those things. And so what ends up happening later on in the film is the son tries to use the rock against others of his class to sort of, again, maintain his uh, purchase on the rungs of the ladder to get back up. And what does the rock do? It does not and it does not break them. It breaks himself. Yeah. I mean, it, it, wow. Like it's, it, it's it, great. It's so on the nose. But it's, it's a metaphor. Again, it, this is the, the cleverness of this screenplay, right? It, yeah. is, it is the screenplay like using uh, the, the son's, this recurring gag, uh, to kind of undercut the ways in which it's clever with its themes, right? Mm-hmm. It's deliberately kind of taking the piss out of itself in ways that I really appreciate. But there's a there there, a big there. <laughs> yeah, a huge, huge there there, which is, again, and, and, but it's mobile and it's, 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 you know, you can actually use it, but it ends up finding a way to be used against you. It's, it's, it, it, because of its sort of, um, immobility, it's sort of, um, fundamental, uh, lack of inertia is what keeps it from being able to be used, right? So, anyway, yeah, I just was really, really taken aback by that particular way in which, yes, we're haunted by this thing, but if we try to use its own means to accomplish our purposes, it comes back, and we don't, you know, we don't use it to slaughter our enemies or to gain purchase. What we do is we find ourselves being crushed under its weight ourselves, uh, quite literally, in the case of uh, uh, the, the Kim Sun. 
uh, in this uh, particular story. So, yeah, that that's that's the you know the the first thing that really kind of struck me about this. Um, let's talk about the headdresses, shall we? And yeah. Okay. We'll pivot back. Well, I mean, look, it's it's once again. A metaphor. Uh, Bong Joon-ho is not a dumb man. I assume he knows what happened to the indigenous peoples of North America. Yes. Uh, so using uh, a, a people crushed by what we then called would have called manifest destiny, which we should have called imperialism, which is always just you know proto-capitalism. He's not stupid. He knows what he's doing there. Having the this representation of a genocided people uh, who've had their culture turned into a costume that like is then exported by the people that genocided them, right? Mm-hmm. The the fact that this this toy teepee was bought from the United States mm-hmm. is a big laugh line in the movie. Um, I, I, I would love to say, I would love to see this just that one line 50 times in 50 different cities. Yeah. That's all. I just, <laughs> I'm just curious. But it's, it's, a, it's a good line. But again, it, it does keep pointing out this the wow i forgot his uh the name of the the youngest park child uh but his 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 interest i think that's it yeah i think it is dang soon uh but his his interest in uh the native peoples of north america is really not remarked upon Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem that weird to anybody in fact uh um Kevin, which is uh, the, the the Kim son's uh, English teacher name, um, which is so funny. The, uh, we'll talk about Kevin. He is such a Kevin. Jessica, only child, Chicago, Illinois. Um, this movie's so funny. Uh, but Kevin's like, oh, he's got a fanboy personality. Like, uh, yeah, this is just uh, a look, right? This is just an avatar, a persona for uh, for the littlest to put on. But it's just like anything else, right? An ethnic distinction is just as manufactured as a class distinction. Um, but, they they exist a little bit more fundamentally, right? I mean, language and culture uh, and religion, these are things that do separate people uh, in you know ways that we made up, sure, but they exist a little bit more concretely than some of the other uh, things that we've made up as a, human societies, or at the very least, they're harder to shake off. And, and I think it's interesting that everybody keeps slipping these things on, right? Because the Park, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Park, when they uh, have their very horny moment, uh, are talking about getting the trashy panties that uh, were planted in the original driver's car, right? They're talking about how hot it would be to get the cheap underwear out. And to sell sell her drugs. Exactly. And buy me drugs. Please buy me drugs. Uh, yeah. Weirdest hot talk ever. That's so funny. B- but the Kims do the same thing, right? They're thinking of... <laughs> okay, maybe not. <laughs> the Kims do the same thing, right? Uh, they they joke around about uh, how the, the daughter is so at home, right? She She's immediately, within an evening, as it's like she's lived there for years. She's already figured out watching TV in the bathtub. She's no dum-dum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so both families are doing the same thing. They're trying on these different POVs uh, to see what they feel like. I do think there's an additional subtlety that we want to mention, though, as well, is the very last scene where the the specter uh, comes up after the death of his um, his wife. And yeah. We can talk about the murder itself, accidental, premeditated, I don't know. That one's that one's that a, one's accidental. That's murder too. The, the manslaughter. That's a manslaughter. The for, next one's a murder for sure. Yeah. Well, when he comes up to do some murder, so we've got Mr. <laughs> Park and Mr. Kim both in headdresses. Yeah. And it does seem that the uh, the particular choices of putting them in these Native American you know war bonnets or you know, any number of terms are used for this, but the, the headdress uh, is what I'm going to use. Um, that there's a way in which uh, Mr. 
Park is framed that is silly and slapstick and uh, just sort of ridiculous, this man in this thing. But the way the framing um, is only the face of Mr. Kim. It's a much tighter close-up. It's yeah. much They're tighter. They're both shot in close, but his is a much tighter close-up. And his is much, for, much more full of sobriety and sadness. And when he finally retaliates against all the indignity that he suffered, there's a way in which uh, Bong has recoded a racial story of genocide as a class story of genocide and has tried to find a way to reunite those two stories uh, in the way that that attack takes place after that and you know, yeah. final death of Mr. Park, um, which is great. Um, well, I think the other great thing about that scene, I, I like that, that reading that you've drawn out of that, Dustin. I think that's really cool. I, but it's... Uh, I'm just going to say Jessica. I'm I'm sorry, listeners. I wish I was better with Korean first names. The surnames are a lot easier uh, for me. I'm I'm dumb. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Jessica, uh, man, I, I feel like such a piece of shit. Anyway, uh, she she she's the one that points out it's not our laundry soap. It's we live in a sub basement. We have mm-hmm. basement smell. Yeah, you can't mildew. Which again is this idea that this is a thing that we cannot wash off. We we can pretend that we belong in like this lower middle class life working for these super rich people, but we are like hustling the best we can to even like fake at, you know, I'm faking at being a student. My brother's faking at being a graduate. Like they're all faking at being a couple of class rungs higher so they can work for somebody a couple even more class rungs higher up. But the thing that they can't get rid of is the smell, the the Mm -hmm. smell that mars them as the class that they really are. Or haunts. Or haunts. Exactly. I mean, as, as much of the ghost imagery we get throughout this film, uh, it, it's her that is the one that recognizes it, that this is the thing that will, you know, is the reason that, that we're going to be found out, right? And that never ends up coming back up, except to remind you that it's not just the youngest Park that notices it. It is Mr. Park noticing it, too. And it is him being so incapable of having feeling for I like that you've been calling uh, the original housekeeper's husband the specter I'll keep calling him the specter the specter has been murdered at this point or at least killed in self-defense by uh, Mrs. Kim Mm -hmm. Um, and Mr. Park cannot get over his bullshit long enough to grab the keys to drive his his seizing son to the hospital he he's that bothered by the smell of this guy. And sure, this guy's been living in a basement for four years. Yeah. Like, he's probably not had a shower in a minute. I mean, I'm sure there's he a strong great. odor, yeah. I've been, you know, look, I've been around people that don't smell great. But yeah, I'm around homeless people all the time. Don't yeah. be weird about how people smell, y'all. You don't know, again, this comes back to the thing of, you don't know what people are going through. Mm-hmm. Mr. Kim saved what was left of his life from a literal ocean of feces the night before. Maybe he's not super excited about you talking about turning lemon into lemonade. Uh, so again, it, it is this additional final acknowledgement. Not only are you not as good as us, even in death, you'll never be as good as us. We won't even treat you like a person in death because in death, you'll still smell weird and poor. And that's what sends Mr. Kim over the edge, right? It's, it's this, I don't care about this servant of mine that has been murdered. I don't care, uh, even that my kidneys go to the hospital now. I can't deal with how smelly this guy is. And I love, it is that reminder of, how concrete that class barrier is that that is the thing that as you said like is the the event that pushes mr kim to to take that action it's uh it's a lot going on in that scene man yeah. but i i thought i'm glad that you got that out of uh the, the 
uh, Native American iconography. Yeah, the I was framing a lot was so much tighter and it's so much more emotive. I think yeah. performance is part of it as well. It's sure, not, yeah. it's not just performance, but the camera itself is. We're clearly to to sort of to truly ascribe the Native American uh, history and uh, baggage to Mister Kim. And uh, we are not – we are supposed to look at it as a gag on uh, Mr. Park. Yeah. And so, yeah. It's a great, it's a great distinction, right? It, it really is. Uh, it, it, it is the second time that Mr. Park brings up, like, doing things for love to mm-hmm. Mr. Kim. And it, this kind of brings us to another interesting point about – do we want to pivot to the, this idea of crossing lines? I think this might be a good place. Uh, yeah, now that sure. we're talking about Mr. Kim and Mr. Park, I think they have an interesting relationship, right? Uh, Mr. Kim, uh, or Mr. Park is uh, a couple of times her referring to this idea of like line crossing with the help, uh, which is a whole Gross. thing, a whole thing. Uh, but there is, he's, he's intrigued by the fact that Mr. Park walks up to the line. It's interesting because, or Mr. Kim walks up to the line because it seems like he does want somebody to kind of be his friend, right? He is looking for some, something resembling companionship. He just wants that person to remember they're an employee at all times. And it, it, it's a gross distinction to have, uh, especially if you're bringing somebody into your home, man. Like, at, at a certain point, come on, dude. You can't keep treating people like an employee like that. That's gross. Yeah, it's, it's a very much like a signaling know your station. Exactly. Like, but, we could be cool, but know your station. And again, it comes back to that smell thing, right? It is all personified there. But I, I, it's interesting to me the times in which we... G- we get to see some humanity coming out of Mr. Park because it is few and far between. It really does dole it out to us. Uh, but in that moment before his death, the fact that he is once again being reminded that, like, you know, you do do this stuff because you love your wife. You can pretend you don't as much as you want, but you're doing it because you love her. It is it is interesting that Mr. Kim is very clearly talking about himself at that point. He's like, okay, I'll degrade myself for you because I love my wife and my family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is the, the very interesting distinction is that... Uh, Neither of them is doing anything that different. They're both doing something that they feel kind of weird uh, and uh, made a fool about. Uh, but Mr. Park gets to play at being a fool. Mr. Kim is forced to play at being a fool all the time. And it's that line crossing and that trying. And again, it's, it's, I'm pivoting back a little bit to that uh, idea of trying on personas a little bit. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by Mr. Park as a character and like his this obsession with line crossing that he has i was really curious about that i don't have any more to add to that i just want to bring it up no that's, that's a great point i'm glad you did because i think it is worth sort of reflecting on let's talk a little bit narrative stuff uh, or uh genre stuff because i want to talk suspense and the hitchcock comparisons which does bring us to the murder itself and uh the bodies under the table a la rope um during that scene um and just the way in which uh the film really builds suspense really really well um, there is a way in which the entire scene, which begins with this sort of great, you know, festive um, bacchanal where they are just drinking all the liquor and eating all the food as uh, the the parks are out of town celebrating a, um, I don't know, a birthday. It's a, yeah, it's the youngest trip. birthday, yeah, to get for, him out of the house because he still scoop, spooped a ghost. So the, these cats are away and these mice are now playing and enjoying that time, which is great. It's fun. Um, and they're, they're doing that. But there's a way in which that scene itself you're waiting every second for them to show up and then 
the old housekeeper shows up. And then we go down in the basement and the specter's revealed. And then we have them coming home and they're trying to hide the mess. And she's making her way back up the stairs. And there's the drop kick down the steps, which results in her eventual death. Um, all of that suspense is just really Hitchcockian. I mean, th- that's where the comparison lies. And you've done some reading on that, right, Arthur? On the on the Hitchcock stuff with this movie, I've seen it just mentioned in passing, but yeah. I mean, it's pretty on the nose. I mean, the, the, that gear shift moment I think harkens back to Psycho, where we've got. I mean, we've been set up that this is some kind of con heist movie, and there are all these kind of red herrings that lead up to that moment of gear shift, which I think harkens back to Psycho, where we think Psycho is going to be the tale of Marion Crane, mm-hmm. and then it's not. And structurally, this is kind of echoing that, where we think this is going to be a family of of cons uh, just trying to live off of this family, but it's not. Um, And so uh, those moments there um, that really are the first major, I think, tonal shift in in what's to come next uh, feels very Hitchcockian. And to your point, you know, I I think Rope is a good uh, excursion. We've got the family, and we're like... Are they going to get discovered? Are mm-hmm. they going to get caught? I mean, and that's all. Instead of having a meal over the table, um, they're having a different kind of meal. Um, <laughs> um, that, the horny sex scene happens while they're hiding under yeah. the table, which is just to, to disclose yeah. the listener in case they haven't watched and they're still listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the bomb under the table playing out. You know? Yeah. I mean, as Hitchcock would have described it or defined it or exampled it. Uh, and, and then from there, when things are revealed, you know, the, that there is this sub-basement and that there are people in the sub-basement and that the stakes are ultimately higher. So anytime we cut to that basement or we hear mention of the people below it and the, anything that happens after that scene, we're instantly, oh, I mean, it, it raises the stakes and the implications of any of those scenes that take place down there are, are instantly uh, heightened. Well, just the reveal of the existence of the basement, right? Because we we get such a clear sense of geography of the household throughout the entire like first act of the film. Uh, the cinematography like does a really great job uh, establishing the space, especially mm-hmm. the kitchen and the living room, right? right. Where, well, in the basement itself, where the storage is, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, where the pantry is. The mm-hmm. the, the sub basement we don't find out till later, right? Because but again, that's we we get the lay of the land of the basement, mm-hmm. right? We think we know everything about this house. We get a very Two or I would say at least one uh, extremely extended sequence walking through the house, but there's at least two shorter ones. Mm-hmm. So we really do feel like we've got a lay of the land. Uh, you know, Dustin talked about the metaphors of uh, you know rocks not changing and waters always changing. I think on second watch for me, the thing that really stood out to me was the one moment where we feel like we've attained equilibrium. Mm. Um, and it is in one of these big, long tracking shots where we get the biggest feel for the geography of the house. We've already kind of spent a lot of time there, but uh, we follow Mrs. Kim because um, she is the last member of the family to get employment from the parks. Uh, we follow her, you know, taking food to uh, her son and uh, the daughter of the parks for their study break and to her daughter uh, and, and their uh, art therapy sessions. Uh, you know, we, we follow her all throughout this house, and it's this moment where for me on a first view, I'm like, okay, I thought this was going to be like where we were at in the third act. We are clearly only halfway through this movie. And and it is this moment that is so sunshine and rainbows that you know it won't last. Even though it's been a comedy up until this point, I, I think that speaks again when to... Mr. Kim grabs her butt. <laughs> so cute. It's such a sweet, tender moment between the two of them. I really love it. Yeah. Um, and again, the tenderness between Mr. and Mrs. Kim uh, kind of overshadowing this cold sexuality of the parks is a whole different thing about like class and sexuality we don't have time to get into mm-hmm. but that that tracking shot for me is this moment where 
we, we feel just how nice it is to not be worried for once. Even if they're at work, they're having a good day because they know that they've got money to go home and eat that night and they know they've got a job to come back to the next day and they're not worried about shit for once. And that's when you know that this movie's going to take a turn because that's not how working poverty works. That's just not, unfortunately, the world that we live in. There is uh, always going to be another shoe waiting around the corner to drop. Uh, it, the, the river will keep flowing. Um, time will keep moving forward. New considerations will arise. And it is in, in that, like, this really pretty, like, flowy moment of cinematography that the things start to crack and unravel. And then we get to this night scene that we've been talking about already. Uh, I really just love the, the craftsmanship of that. Mm-hmm. To to use that, to really even heighten this, to use moments of, like, joy and levity to heighten suspense is such a, a unthought masterwork to me. Like, it's not even something that would occur to me. And it's something I I know I've seen in other films before, but it's just because it like exists as such a strong act break in parasite yeah that that thriller structure is is really kind of it's self-evident on second watch uh, in a way that i didn't expect uh arthur for like you on second and third viewings um how have you felt about that you know we've been talking about the the nature of this as a suspense and a thriller especially in the back half how, how does that play for you on you know you having seen it the most of the two of us so far um Everything seems to happen a lot quicker. Yeah. And and so some of that anticipation and dread is gone, mm-hmm. I think. And you're just kind of curious to one is looking for, you know, if there's anything really to set it up. Mm-hmm. And not quite. I mean, there are a couple of little lines here and you know, she eats for two or you you, you do see the lights flickering early on, uh, which is the Morse code that yeah. mm-hmm. uh the, the Spectre <laughs> uh uses to send hidden messages to his his benevolent benefactor, Mr. Park. Um and so it was trying to look for those kind of things, you know, see things. But I, I think it still works, you know. I think it's still effective in, in its approach. And when when the buzzer rings and, and the housekeeper's there, and then when the phone rings and they're only eight minutes away, <sighs> I mean, it still hits you with that that urgency it's and that dread, intense. and it works. Uh, and what I do think, you know, the other Hitchcock thing I think that Park's doing or Bong is doing is um, he is uh, using red herrings quite a bit, which again goes back, I think, to Psycho. Psycho opens with a title card, which kind of establishes that as a procedural. And then we've got the kind of illicit affair uh, of you know, Marion and I can't think of his name. I don't remember either. Uh, Loomis. Um, and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've also got the uh, the money, which is another uh, MacGuffin, uh, which we think this is going to be about somebody stealing that money. And none of those things matter. And I think. Uh, Bong does a good job of setting those things up as well because we've got the uh, illicit relationship between Kevin and uh, the Parks' daughter um, when we kind of think this is going to become about that. Uh, And then we've got a moment where uh, when they do ask for all of their information after they've conned them out of four different jobs or three different jobs at that point uh, and they're calling about the fictional care company uh, to get a new maid or housekeeper, um, you know, she asks for all of their right, like key information. Cyber fraud's about to happen, right? Yeah, and, and I think, oh, they're just about to steal their house after they're gone. Yeah. I mean, it's setting that up. And he's planning all these different kind of red herrings to keep you guessing. Uh, and some might quibble, you know, thinking of those. And there's another one where um, the uh, the Spectre is sending a Morse code message to uh, the son. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Dang Soon. Yeah, we think Dang Soon's going to like bust the whole thing wide open. Tra- yeah. And you're like, oh, this is going to, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I Nothing think comes of it, yeah. yeah. I, I think they're all just kind of little red herrings to keep you off guard of what he really wants to do. And then when he does really pull the rug out from under you, uh, which feels also very Hitchcock in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it kind of pivots back to this, the, the, the kind of lived in nature of the film, just to say that like, it's never one thing, man. There's always so many balls in the air in a given human life that, like, it only takes one thing going wrong for a whole domino chain that you can't stop. Like, if you have built a house of cards, you cannot be surprised when it blows over. Right. Um, unfortunately, sometimes you don't have the luxury of thinking about how sturdy your structure is. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to mention one other moment in the film that I was almost angry with the movie. Oh, okay. I was almost furious, and I wonder if you guys already guess what it is. Is it the ending? It is the ending. When, I in, love the ending in, of this in, movie. In which Kevin sort of imagines a possible future. Yeah. But it's not at first represented like that. He's, he's sort of discovered that his father is now hiding in the same place the Spectre was once hiding in the same basement. Yeah. There's new tenants in the home. And um, that uh, his dad's down there, and he's, he makes a decision that he's going to go back to university and get really, really rich, and he's going to buy that house and let his dad out. And there's this like hug that happens before a fade to black. And I thought, if this movie is over on this, I am going to be so angry. I was really confused when I thought that was the end of the movie because I'm like, why would you do that? And then it rolls back to him sitting in his yeah. same... It's not a flash forward. It is a fantasy. It's a fantasy. Yeah. And it is him holding on to that hope. And the fact that, that it's utterly unattainable is obvious throughout. Because plans don't work. But that yeah. is that is the dream that sort of, you know, the reason why, you know, there's never class revolution, um, said John Steinbeck, is because everyone's up holding out for the time when they're the millionaires. And uh, that's exactly it. Is it, He's just, well, you know, one of these days I'll be a millionaire and I'll just take care of my business that way yeah and it's it 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 is so sad because it's uh the loss of of his sister the loss of the you know the this key member of the kim family really does kind of unravel their lives Mm -hmm. and you know the the lessons that we almost get learned don't get learned because it does end up becoming just about survival again and if your options are you know build the workers paradise or save your father from the basement he lives in, of course you're going with option two because that is a much clearer, easier to attain goal. And uh, it's it's a beautiful moment where you, at first, because you see this like growth of, oh, he sees the value of making plans. He sees the value of having a contingency. He doesn't see that the point that his dad was trying to make is that the world will keep blowing up your plans. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's a it's a great ending. I, I I'm with you. It's a, an ending that makes you go, what the fuck is this? A now a third different movie? It's like no, no, we were always just this one movie. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm with you. I like that ending a lot. I, I as soon as you said you were almost mad, I knew that's what you were talking about. Yeah, nearly furious because like you just undid the whole work. But yeah. no, he managed to keep it all together. Well done. Yeah, he well lands done. the plane well. He did. Yeah, he does. Well, yeah, I guess does. we probably ought to render a verdict, guys. What do you think about Parasite? Should it go on a shelf or in the trash? On three, shelf. Shelf. You didn't count to three. Oh, shelf. Shelf. Three. Yeah. Shelf. shelf. Nonetheless, it's going. To, if you'd counted, yeah. to, if you'd counted to three, I may have reconsidered though. Clearly, we all like this movie a shit ton. Clearly, it's probably going to be in all of our top fives at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, come at into least. your time. Yes. Go, go to the cinema. Go see this. Give, give, give international picture just your money. It's good. It's good praxis. For sure. Uh, it's just good to support art anyway, uh, especially if you live somewhere that doesn't always get international releases it's it's good to remind exhibitors in your city that 
you know, there is a, a market and a demand. Now we want to see this movie. Yep, very good, very good. Well, I think we've got a, uh, another movie, a 2019 Blind Spot, to follow up with uh, on next week. It's going to be a bit more American, um, apparently. Um, In a way. Uh, so, Arthur, why don't you tell us what we're watching next? Uh, well, uh, we're going to... Uh, well, Dalton, you know, we decided, you know, do we keep doing 2019? Do we not? Do we take a break and then go back? We decided just to run with it. Uh, Dalton was like, well, what's a movie that inspired some discourse early in the year that wasn't Endgame? Uh, which is hard to think about from pre-in-game. It uh, really did dominate the four months leading up to it. And after. And after, yeah. yeah it, it was, it's either in-game or Joker. I mean, it's one of those two movies you're talking about this year. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I was what like, time to man, be alive. that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I was kicking it around. And I was like, oh, wait, I know. Alita, Battle Angel, uh, which is quite a topic of conversation. Uh, it became heralded by uh, the troll boys who hated Captain Marvel and, you know, go see Alita instead of Captain Marvel. Um, which is an interesting discourse. Uh, and so, yeah, we're going to watch Alita Battle Angel from uh, Dustin's favorite director, Robert Rodriguez. I don't dislike him. I just like don't like all of his movies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't watched a Robert Rodriguez movie you liked. Oh, well, no. Okay. God, have we not? You know what? We've only done two. To Dustin's credit, Dustin uh, has been older and wiser than us since we've started doing the show. And now that I'm uh, older and wiser than we started doing the show, I, I like Robert Rodriguez a lot less as a director. So I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, this place is called Over the Hill. I don't Welcome. like having to put aside childish things is all I'm saying mm -hmm. for, for now. Uh, Arthur, you said it's kind of American. I say there's nothing more American than stealing a property from another country and adapting it with uh, all of our American picadillos. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, there you go, dear listener. That's what's coming on down the pike for you all. You keep watching, we'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not...